It was a dark and stormy night. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Call me Ishmael. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a conversation about the importance of stories and how they shape us. Welcome to Storyformed. Welcome to another Faith and Culture podcast. This one is titled Storyformed. And in, in this series, it's going to connect with our Real Talk series. We're going to be discussing the impact of stories on forming what we want to call the moral imagination. We're not making that terminology up. It's, it's a real set of ideas that people have been thinking and talking about for a long time. T.S. Eliot, among them, uh, a man named Russell Kirk, has been formative in our thinking on the moral imagination. And, uh, and so... From time to time, we may we may reference these guys, and um, and that's why because they're helping us to think through the development of the moral imagination and and the kinds of stories that we tell. What we're seeing in our culture is um, a rapid decline in the in the um, substance of stories, the nobility of stories that are being told, especially to our children, and we think that that is both symptomatic and cause of a greater problem in the moral decline of our culture. And so Christians need to be thinking well about this. So that's what we want to do. And we want to start, I think, this conversation by just asking the the, the fellowship here in the room, what is the moral imagination? How would you define that concept, the moral imagination? So I struggled. This is kind of a new area of discussion and and research for me so i'm actually really excited about it because it's maybe going to connect some dots in my head at first it was hard to distinguish what they meant by moral imagination from the term worldview Mm -hmm. so uh, i've done a lot of work obviously in worldview which is the lens through which you view the world sort of the big uh structures big questions that you use to say what kind of a universe are we in what sort of story are we telling about reality um, as I read more, and I, we looked at some things by Russell Kirk, and I'm going to hopefully get into some some Elliot and Edmund Burke as well, but I think I would say the moral imagination is, as worldview is the bones of a body, the moral imagination would be the, the muscles and the organs. It is the more detailed description of how we ought to live in that kind of universe. So. To make it very short and as concise as I can, the moral imagination is the way that we understand how we live within the worldview we've created. Might be the best way that I can put it together. Yeah. No, I think that that's. I think that that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, seems to me it's it's a moral construct that you come up with based on what's fed your imagination. So when we talk about yeah, that's good. Stories or movies that maybe we sit in front of or things we listen to. Um, your imagination is informed by those things, and so you develop sort of a moral construct, right or wrong, uh, based on what, what was feeding you. 
And um, like that, to me, that's how you come up with your moral imagination. I think Russell Kirk actually uh, closely connects the um, the practical manifestation of a moral ma- imagination to the question of literature and art. And so it, it's really, I think, in the way he discusses it often, it's the application of a moral understanding, kind of from touching on what Kyle was saying, it's the application of a moral understanding to the questions of the way human beings express and use mm. literature and art mm. to inform and persuade and influence. So, yes, right. Know. And and I, I think that's exactly right. And it's not arbitrary that art does that or that stories do that. One of the things they're highlighting is this idea that our lives are lived out in story, and we even conceive of our own lives as taking part within a story. And so it's the stories we imbibe that color for us our own stories and our own lives. And so when when we're told stories, when our ancestors pass down stories in particular of great heroism or villainy or whatever the case may be, those are the lenses through which we understand our own decisions and, and, and our own actions. So it's, it's not to say that propositional truth is not formative or also necessary. It's just that right. our lives don't take place as a proposition. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it touches, frankly, on, you know, we've talked about Carl Truman. We've done some work mm-hmm. in Strange New World, and he has this whole thing he discusses, he r- describes as the social imaginary. Mm-hmm. And there's a, mm-hmm. I think that that is sort of, giving a nod a, a bit to this whole idea, which is yeah. the way you wander through life, you have a certain imagination, imaginary uh, perspective about what other people are, what they're thinking, yeah. what 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 they aspire to. You know, you don't always know these things. It certainly doesn't exist in the form of empirical statements, but you, you kind of wander through life with an imaginary view of how other people are. So I think you know. it's highlighting, and I think Truman does this, I think all the reader, the people we're reading do this, is they're trying to highlight the idea that you can't simply look at the world as sort of objects, right? All objects, all people are going to have context. So all people in our life are characters. Um, all objects become pieces of a plot, right? So for instance, whenever you try to ask a kid, all right, well, who's George Washington? They're going to place him within a story that they've understood. Well, he was the first president of the United States and he fought in the American Revolution. Maybe if you ask a British kid that, they're going to say, well, he was that, you know, dirty Yankee who, (laughs) you know, took our colonies away, right? So that's kind of a small, silly illustration of every person we run into, we have to put them within a story in order to understand them. And that story we understand about that person is informed by the books we've read, the music we've listened to, the people we've talked to, the view of how reality has played out. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, let's let's here's an example of how that might look in practice in in daily life. So there is a story that we're all familiar with. We're all actually um, we profess allegiance to this particular story, and some have called this the greatest story ever told. And it's of course the Lord of the Rings. And so um, <laughs> I knew you were going to say yeah. that. <laughs> so so like, but for, let's take the Lord of the Rings for sure. instance, yeah. right? So there's a, there's a host of characters in the Lord of the Rings. Some of them are noble. Some of them are treacherous. Right. Some of them are weak, and they expose something about our own human frailty, and and how our desires and passions may corrupt our best intentions. 
Um, I think of a, a character like Boromir, right? Boromir is a guy who was, came from noble stock as the child or the son of the steward of Gondor. He had noble intentions. He wanted to do what was best for his city. But in the end, his own desires and passions um, corrupted his, his nobility um, and his yeah. virtue. And so there's a guy like Boromir who stands for anyone who's read those stories as a moral construct— in the way that we view ourselves, even in the world. And so when we make yeah. decisions, we're often think you might even think, ah, am I, am I being like Boromir? Am I grasping at something that I desire when really it'd be better for me to sit back like Aragorn? So you see what yeah. I'm saying? So we have yeah. stories that we actually filter our own lives through. Mm-hmm. And, and here's yeah. the important thing about this, okay? J.R.R. Tolkien, when he wrote Lord of the Rings, did not create that human, the idea of human frailty. He reflected the idea of human frailty in a story. So there's something transcendent that the writer reflects in the story he's telling. We're not creating the moral norms. When we write, we're we're reflecting moral norms. Yeah, Yeah. I think, you know, Anthony Esselin, who's a very interesting writer, if any listener hadn't had a chance to read any of his stuff, very... uh, forthright and provocative in many ways. He's a literature professor, uh, but he actually, in one of his books, I forget which one, he he tells a story about how his daughter kind of reads Lord of the Rings once a year, and one of her friends at school, she came home saying, one of my friends at school said, why are you always reading what's Lord of the Rings? And 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 he, he said, I told her she should tell her friend, I read Lord of the Rings to find out what's true in the world. And I think... He he has a you know he certainly has a grasp of the um, the practice of the moral imagination because he what he the Lord of the Rings is a fictional story why would he think that from a fictional story we can find out what's true in the world because a fictional story is an expression of a moral imagination that that is binds it back to true things yeah right and specifically and she, the idea of the ethical understanding of the world around us so um we know from the story of boromir because of the way the story is told in lord of the rings that his his choice to try to take the ring was bad right and that's important like you could tell the story and say well and he tried to take the ring because at the end of the day might makes right but that's not how the story frames his decision. And so that allows us to look at our own circumstance and say, okay, just because we have the power to take something from someone else to further our goals doesn't mean it's right. And so this, you know, if you want to boil it down, moral imagination is the way we understand what makes our choices either right or wrong. And all the stories that we're collecting, specifically the stories that we repeat and the stories that are more central to our culture – become the bedrock of that understanding of the world around us. Yeah, so norms, where they originate, the source of norms is an important question. So if yeah. there really is such a thing as moral norms, then we need to we need to talk a little bit about where they come from and not just not just where those moral norms come from. Um, I'm trying to be careful not to say Merle Norman, which is a makeup place, uh, makeup store place, but moral <laughs> it's norms. It's not Merle Norman, it's yeah, moral, it's norm. moral norms. norms. <laughs> which, um, if you say that five times fast, it becomes completely indistinguishable. Yeah, and, and when we say moral norm, we're not talking about a guy named Norman who's moral. Yeah, right. Moral norm, old, is... old moral norm. You know, no, we're... <laughs> it's a kids' book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a really bad kids' a book. Really bad. Uh, 
No. So where do they come from? And then also, how do we receive them is a separate question. Hmm. So moral norms exist and they transcend human reality. They are not personal, but universal in, um, in scope. But then also, how do we, how do we receive them? Yeah. And, and I would, I would say just to, just to lean into what you've said there, I think there's a lot of people that would assume that that in and of itself is a belief statement. Like, well, maybe there aren't any moral norms. Maybe we can just do whatever we want. Just so that audience understands, that would be a moral norm. Yeah. If you create the moral norm of there are no moral norms, you've created one, and you've you've there set, are no moral norms except that there are there no, are no moral, moral norms. norms. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think there's a lot of people who would try to push back against this idea until they realize they're trying to create a moral norm of something like freedom, mm-hmm. right, or something mm-hmm. like human self determination, some so, abstract principle. Yeah. yeah. And so to your point, we're going to have to do this. It's yeah. a question of how well we're doing it. So um, l- let me read just a little bit from Kirk here because he captures this idea pretty well. He says, uh, I do not propose to invent norms. <laughs> the sanction for obedience to norms must come from a source higher than private speculation. Men do not submit long to their own creations. Standards erected out of expediency will be hurled down soon enough also out of expediency. Either norms have a reality independent of immediate social utility, or they are mere fictions. If men assume that norms are no better than the pompous fabrications of their ancestors, got up to serve the interests of a faction or an age, then every rising generation will will challenge the principles of personal and social order and will learn wisdom only through agony. I have never heard a more concise description of the 21st century. I know. I know. And it it gets better. I I might read some more from Kirk later on in the conversation. But his point here being that Moral norms come from a transcendent source, or a, 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 I wouldn't say a moral norm giver, but the moral norms reflect the first principles or the nature of reality that God Himself, in His good and immutable character, has right. instilled in the world. Right. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that we have to have these understandings of morality coming from outside of us because to your point it's going to ultimately degrade uh emma burke has a similar idea when he talks about the french revolution which was a attempt to get rid of a lot of these moral norms or pretend that they were sort of the fashion of an old bygone age right? right which in and of itself is an illustration that they were chasing some higher norm but so they're trying to throw a bunch of old norms out and he describes it that view of the world is this way um on this scheme of things a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. All homage paid to the sex in general as, as such, and without distinct views, is to be regarded as romance and folly. And he goes on to talk about that um, at the end of every vista, you see nothing but the gallows. Mm-hmm. So it's this discussion that if we try to dispense with, th- if we believe that all discussions of what humans are for or or the right or wrong of human action is but just something we voted on at one point in history. Eventually, we're going to tear down everything that makes us truly good. And we're not going to get a neutral humanity. We're going to get a, a, a wicked humanity. Well, yeah. what, what's fascinating about Burke's observation there when he says if every king is a man and every man 
What does he say? If every king is a man, every king is a man is but a man. A queen is but a woman. A queen. woman is but an animal. An animal not of the highest order. Which is what's interesting is one of the one of the fallouts from that exact sort of enlightened thinking mm-hmm. is the degradation of particularly the woman. Mm, yeah, and and the fact that she's preyed upon mm. in our culture almost like an animal. Yeah. Um, whereas in in bygone eras, it wasn't that there weren't predators or that women weren't preyed upon, but there were social norms like marriage like decency like you know rather than self-expression there were there were um forms of social norms and etiquette that protected women from being preyed upon like animals right um i was about to sneeze trying not to you're talking about norms being transcendent it made me think of you know how god instills things within us his own creation and you know, Jesus talks about fathers, talking about the love of the Heavenly Father, but even he said wicked fathers, uh, who among them, if their children ask for a fish, did they give them a, a stone? You know, so there was hmm. something inherent, a norm, maybe we would call it a norm that God has instilled even in the lost that know how, the right to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, doesn't mean they always abide by it, but there's this, there's this instinct, this response and and knowledge put in us by you know our father that even the lost father knows he ought to be doing right by his child yeah well and two the idea that every person in the old testament would have been living with a set of moral norms given to them directly by god but not only directly by god not just a set of principles but a set of stories right there's a reason we're trying to call this series story formed it's that the moral imagination is is not built adequately simply through a list of principles and propositions. It is stories and the description of reality as a story that becomes the most potent tool we have as humans for creating a moral imagination. Yeah, Flannery O'Connor, who was a Catholic novelist in the 50s, and um, is, I'm kind of a big fan of – I'm not so much a fan of her fiction as I am of her thinking about thinking explicitly about what it means for Christians in particular to write and express their moral imagination. And one of the things she said that kind of fits with Kyle's comment just now is she says, our response to life is different if we have been taught only a definition of faith than if we have trembled with Abraham as he held the knife over Isaac. Mm. Mm. Um, I think she's speaking to the transformative effect of observing events that are fraught with spiritual implications versus Mm -hmm. just understanding the propositional as important as it is i mean at one level artistic expression flows out of a set of propositional assumptions or moral norms as you describe it but i think it's uh, as human beings we we we're drawn into the the working out of those propositions at least goes, as much as the proposition themselves. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to our last podcast with changing our minds, you know, when he talked about, or she uh, wrote about the surgeon wanting to take woodworking classes to get that experience, and pilots who only learned on it today only learn by reading on a screen what they're supposed to be doing, but when events come up in an actual flight, they struggle when the hands have to be on the controls. And so that whole idea of experiencing in order to really grasp you know, there's something to be said for that. Also, this whole talk about the storytelling, just just another uh, 
reminder, Jesus knows what he's up to when he's t- teaching through parables. Yeah. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesus always situated his listeners within a story when he was trying to teach something yeah. truly imp- important and eternal. Yeah. Right. And there are eternal norms, truths that really only inhabit a story well. Um, so the, the the counterpoint in our culture to the idea of objective, universal, moral norms or standards, you could, by the way, norms and standards, you could say uh, interchangeably. We're, we're yeah. using the word moral moral norms because um, because it fits well within the language of the guys that we're being informed by. Yeah. So that when we quote, you understand exactly what we mean by by the term we're using. But yeah. the the counterpoint in our culture to this idea of moral <laughs> norms is is individualism, okay, and hyper individualism of our age, which Russell Kirk here defines. This way, he says, it is an individualism without norms, a passion for being different merely for the sake of differing, an undiscriminating defiance of authority, convention, and conformity for the sake of being autonomous. The only end of existence to be discerned in this form of individualism is diversion, an uneasy search for new pleasures. Yeah, yeah. And so so that's, the, that's the opposite of... Moral norms and standards. Moral norms and standards are fences that help us to operate in freedom. Right. Whereas individualism is a trackless waste that imprisons <laughs> you in pursuit of your own desires. Yeah. And I think there are some people that would say they're not individualist because they've got a large group of individuals that agree with them about their individuality. Hmm. Um, that's sort of the culture we've inherited. Uh, Russell. Russell Kirk talks about this as um, the idyllic imagination. He talks about it as an imagination that rejects old dogmas, old manners, rejoices in the notion of emancipation from duty and convention. And so I think there is a way for you to group think your way through individualism and pretend that it's not just you wanting to do whatever you want. Um, but if you have a whole culture of people who all say the only point of this culture is me getting what I want, you can do that together until eventually the whole thing just sort of becomes a train rolling off of the tracks. Yeah, so so let me ask this question then. Um, if we can't just sort of cobble together our own individual moral framework, if that's a, if that's yeah. a recipe for disaster, then let's talk about... Not, so we've established the fact that moral norms come from a transcendent source, and that's obviously God. Yeah, um, they have it's to. easier to say God than transcendent source. So we'll just start saying God now. Okay. Um, so moral norms emanate from God and they issue from his character, not, n- not just his decrees. Yeah. Does that make sense? What, mm-hmm. And his decrees issue from his character as well. Sure. Um, so the moral norms exist transcendently, but what are the sources of moral norms within our lives? How do we encounter the moral norms and receive the moral norms today? I think culture is one way we receive yeah. norms. It's a seedbed of, of the moral imagination. Right. Right, yeah. the culture we're living in. Yeah. I would say the the um, the the rituals or the practices of a culture, specifically as they're uh, codified in institutions. So, like, for instance, I think uh, baptism and the Lord's table are two really powerful ways that we enact rituals that build a moral story for us in the church, right? And so the church has preserved those practices as a way to preserve those understandings of the standards for humans. Mm -hmm. Um, I think similar things can happen in a country. So like the fact that everybody stands up for the national anthem at a ball game, right? This is a, uh, a way to communicate 
through practice something that the the country wants to say is true about itself okay, or about so, the world. Okay, so so let me say this then: Where does that come from? Let me ask that question rather. Where does because I think you're right. It, yeah. Ritual and convention yeah. and tradition. Where does that come from? I mean, I there's mean, there's an easy answer. I mean, a lot of that just comes from history. There right? you go. So the, okay, the so participation the, uh, of history in the present. Yeah. Our ancestors, right? It, yeah. it comes from our ancestors, and so I think a lot of what we, what we even culture to, to say culture is a seedbed of the moral imagination. Most of what we perceive about the moral order of the universe is inherited. It comes from our ancestors and the collective wisdom through, in particular, literature. I mean, we, we, we do live in what they call the Guggenheim parenthesis, right? Or the Gutenberg parenthesis, not Guggenheim. <laughs> Guggenheim would be a different Different parenthesis, anyway, I suppose. But the Gutenberg parenthesis is this idea that with the advent of the printing press and the proliferation of books and literature, it changed the way human beings even think and, and create culture. That's, that's the immediate milieu of our own moral imagination. Yeah. Is that shared literary inheritance? You see, Paul, you see Paul saying that to Timothy, you know, it started with your grandmother, then it was with your mom. Right. And now yeah. it's being passed on to you right. yeah. as far as the faith. And, right. And those, and those inherited, uh, that inherited norm, that inherited standard is tied to particular sets of authority, right? So for the church, it's uh, our scriptures and the teaching of the apostles. For our countries, it's, you know, founding documents like constitutions and things. For families, it's, you know, what father has passed down to, to son. And, um, but I think you can see a real breakdown of this. So, for instance, we live in a culture now where sort of it's become passe to say that, like, parents don't understand their teenagers, and we sort of assume that that's the way uni- the universe has always been, right? They're like, well, you know, those teen- we never know what they're talking about. We never know what they're saying. And I, it's like, well, that's because they're r- listening to stories and they're being formed by narratives around them that are completely different from the stories and art and culture that their parents had, which is actually a f- fundamentally different situation for humans to be in than they've been in for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's good norms that can be p- passed down rooted in the faith, right? But there are bad norms that people can take on, mm-hmm. inherit. There's a passage I came across the other day that's fairly new uh, to my eyes. It's Romans 1, where Paul talks about the wrath of God. <laughs> 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 I'm just yeah. messing with you. Tell, tell me about it. Yeah. What, what, is that, what does that say? You guys hadn't heard. Let me tell you yeah. about this. Yeah. So... There's a there's a section in this book. Um, by the way, I'm I've been quoting from this book by Russell Kirk called "The Enemies of the Permanent Things," and moral norms are some of the permanent things that he has yeah. in mind here. He spent some time in a section of his book called "The Sh- The Shoulders of Giants." I'll try to say that right. The Shoulders of Giants, talking about how our scientific knowledge accrues over the passage of time, and that where even scientific knowledge is built on inherited understandings. We're not having to reproduce every experiment we come to to, in order to re-verify that if you drop an apple from an apple tree, it falls to the ground, right? right? So there are principles that we develop on the shoulders of those who come before us. He says this. He says, this is somewhat extended, but I want to get this because I think he captures this idea very well, and we can move on. So if it's true that even our scientific knowledge, in considerable part, is a legacy from our forebears, it is still more certain that our moral, our social, and our artistic knowledge form a patrimony from men long dead. G.K. Chesterton coined the phrase, 
the democracy of the dead. In deciding any important moral or political question, Chesterton writes, we have the obligation to consult the considered opinions of the wise men who have preceded us in time. We owe these dead an immense debt, and their ballots deserve to be counted. Thus, we have no right simply to decide any question by what the momentary advantage may be to us privately. We have the duty of respecting the wisdom of our ancestors. We also have the duty of respecting the rights of posterity, the generations that are to come after us. This complex of duties is what the old Romans called piety. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? Reverence for our nation, our family in the larger sense, our ancestors, in a spirit of religious veneration. A French philosopher of our time, Gabriel Marcel, writes that the only healthy society is the society which respects tradition. And this is, we're going to wrap up here in just a second. We ought to live, Marcel says, in an atmosphere of diffused gratitude, of sympathy for the hopes and achievements of our ancestors from whom we derive our life and our culture, and which we are morally obliged to pass on undiminished, if not enhanced, to our descendants. We are grateful to the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. This feeling or atmosphere of diffused veneration is weakened in our modern age, for many people live only for themselves, ignoring the debt they owe to the past and the responsibility they owe to the future. They are ungrateful, and ingratitude brings on its own punishment." So this is the picture, I think, of building this moral imagination. It's built up from the building blocks of our ancestors. And part of that shared wisdom of our ancestors is born in the literature yeah. that we teach our children, that we pass on to our children. And yet I see in our time so much of the stories being told. Let's, let's just take Disney movies, for instance, as one example they're either reworkings of older stories and but but bent toward modern sensibilities or they're just really bad stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there are two ways to retell a story. One is to accentuate what the original story was trying to say in a different way, trying to repackage an old story for a new audience, right? The other is to subvert a story, right, which is to take a story that you no longer agree with and retell it in a way that rebukes the old story. And I think many of the stories we tell in our postmodern age um, are an attempt to rebuke the old stories because we want to rebuke the moral imagination of our forebears. I would say a lot of people now still believe we're, what's the word he used, enhancing the culture of our parents. But I think their view of enhancing it is to get rid of as much of it as possible because well, they see most of it as corrupt. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. Yeah. It's a sense that, you know, the the world wasn't anything worth caring about until we got here. You know, yeah. uh, honestly, uh, President Obama gave voice to this in his 2008 campaign when he, he said in this famous speech, we are the ones we have been waiting for. I mean— you speak wow. those kinds of words into a culture in which there there already is a predisposition towards self-absorption. Yeah. And then so you convince everyone that they are the culmination of all good things. And then you have, you know, to Ben's point about Disney movies, you have the second of the... What's the movie where it's ever, we're snowing all the time? What? Frozen. Frozen, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, sorry, guys. Uh, um, but uh, you, in the second movie of Frozen, she's looking for this transcendent being, and and lo and behold, it turns out to be her. 
Yeah. yeah. She is yeah. the one yeah. she's been looking for. We are the ones you know? we've been waiting for. So yeah. I would actually argue that most of that view is an attempt to create a moral imagination out of something as vacuous as like the theory of evolution. So like we sort of, uh, you know, Charles Darwin yeah. gave us this this idea that like, hey, maybe animals are adapting to their environment. And, and science sort of took that idea and continued to expand upon it in such a way where they said, oh, so that means the longer something goes, the more adapted it becomes, the greater it becomes, the more, you know, the more likely it is to flourish and survive. And from that, we've sort of extrapolated this whole godless culture and godless society in which you have what is the most new must be the best, must be the survived fittest thing. Um, and so I think it's a good illustration of how a moral imagination develops when it's not rooted in something that's transcendent. It's trying to find something transcendent outside of itself this, in the form of you know, maybe science. Flannery yeah. O'Connor had right. another interesting thing to say along the lines of how we're accommodating our art to our our a priori assumption. She said, only if we're secure in our beliefs can we see the comical side of the universe. One reason a great deal of our contemporary fiction is humorless is because so many of these writers are relativists, or in, in the case of your example, Darwinists, yeah. um, and have to be continually justifying the actions of their characters on a sliding scale of values. <laughs> our salvation is a drama played out with a devil, a devil who is not simply generalized evil, but an evil intelligence determined on its own supremacy. So she... She, she's sort of saying here that what, you know, we've sort of ruined fiction by accepting relativistic or Darwinistic assumptions and yeah. everything gets corrupt. It kind of reminds me of Sarah Hoyt, who's a science fiction writer. She said in, in, a, in an essay she wrote, she said, uh, smartphones have ruined fiction for the future because she said, if you're going to write fiction that's really reflective of reality, every paragraph or two, you're going to have to insert the words and he looked at his phone. <laughs> he <laughs> checked hilarious. for messages, you know. Yeah. Because I mean, if it, that's the way people are living, and it's you know wrecking fiction. But I think to that point, though, uh, I think the church has done a really great job of trying to, well, at, at least in certain corners, you know, we've done a really great job of trying to teach the truth. I think what we've failed to do is provide the structures and stories and moral imaginative framework, right? The the fuel for a moral imagination for people that were within the church. So, for instance, you know, you send a youth to church twice a week and they get, if I say so myself, decent Bible teaching for three hours, right? If they're well, there. At least that's what we hear. At least that's what I'm going to say in front of my two bosses. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, uh, but then they're going to go home and they're going to listen to music and they're going to uh, watch movies and they're going to read stories from a totally different moral universe. Mm -hmm. And those stories will be so much more formative for them in their understanding of themselves and their universe than that hour and a half, two hours of functional, practical teaching. Because the, the literature, the story, the art is going to capture their imagination way, way more. Yeah, and this is why the imagination is so important. And Kyle, you touched on this recently um, in, in a comment you made just a moment ago about ritual and tradition. Kyle and I had a conversation, a sidebar conversation in my office one day, and we were talking about how important tradition and ritual are for the life of a church and for the preservation and continuance of truth. And one of the things we sort of highlighted in this conversation we had um, was that tradition cannot be created. 
Yeah. It has to be inherited. Yeah. You you can try to create tradition, for, you know, um, ek nihilo, so to speak, out of nothing, <laughs> but but y- y- it'll it'll always be rejected by the next generation it who becomes... creates their own tradition, ek nihilo. Yeah. Tradition and ritual have to be inherited, and I think one of the things the church has done bad is we've we we rejected the tradition and ritual of prior generations as either merely superstitious or pragmatically cumbersome yeah and tried to preserve the truth that the, the the essence of the pea outside the pod yeah. that it was that it was carried in or given to us yeah. in you know so you see what i'm saying it's, i think yeah i think we started to view the gospel as a golden nugget that we could sort of carry around wherever we and as long as we had it in our hands we had the value that it would bring anywhere i think the words that Jesus uses to Van's point about talking about the gospel in terms of story, he often viewed the gospel as a seed mm-hmm. that had to be planted in good soil in an ecosystem in which it could thrive and bear the fruit it needed to bear. Yeah. And I think we've, as evangelicals, a lot of times we've carried the seed well and we've sown the seed well, but we've never tended the soil of yeah. people's lives in a way where it can bear fruit. So, so, so let me talk about this whole idea of the moral imagination within a kind of a concrete area with, with regard to the question of ritual and tradition, okay? Sure. So recently, and, and we talked about this recently in a sermon series we're doing right now, but we, we saw King Charles' coronation ceremony. If you haven't watched that yet, it's pretty it's pretty fascinating, something worth watching. But what's cool about it is there's a lot of tradition and ritual baked into this one ceremony, this coronation ceremony. King Charles actually has to get down on his knees within Westminster Abbey in order to be crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury because he receives his authority from on high. It's really kind of a cool picture of England's idea of the constitutional monarchy. All right. Let's take the marriage as an example of this, all right, this whole idea. Here's a ceremony that came down to us with all kinds of ritual and tradition, and most of that ritual and tradition is being stripped away in modern context to make room for individual self-expression or Joanna Gaines' version of individual (laughs) self-expression, right? So so what what we had was marriages taking place within the context of their embodied communities in a church. They were, in order to ratify a covenant before God, you went into the church with a pastor, and all of that was taking place in that sacred environment. Now, people are getting married outside at barns. (laughs) Like, literally, people are looking for barns to get married in. Guilty. It was a very nice barn in my defense. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, and I was was married at at an art museum. (laughs) You know, so, oh, so, so I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that I did it any better. I was married at a church, just for the record. See, and yeah. that's yeah. why your marriage is the holiest that's right. among us. So, I, all, all I'm saying is, you know, the accoutrements of the things, the, the, the things we surround, our, our, our biggest events in our lives tell us something about the state of our moral imagination. Yeah. For, for, for a marriage, I don't know if there's any. Uh, bigger covenant that a human engages in aside from the covenant that he has in Christ's blood. It's the marriage covenant that transcends all other covenants mm-hmm. outside Christ and including and within Christ. And and we're doing it in barns. It, it, it tells you something about how far we've fallen from that which was given to us by our ancestors mm-hmm. as the meaningful context of 
ritual and tradition for something like marriage. Yeah, I tell I tell young guys when they're talking about getting married and what you know what they're going to include in their marriage ceremony. Um, which is interesting that we even decide that now because there used to just be a little black book the preacher or the priest would carry and that was your marriage ceremony. Um, but I tell them, hey, listen, don't don't vow at the altar that you're going to do the dishes every night like some of these guys do. Like, don't don't do that to yourself. Like, just stick with having to hold from this day forward, right? Um, because we need to know what marriage means. And I think this is to your point, Ben. It's interesting that in the in the culture in which we say, make marriage mean whatever you want, that less people mean to get married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that so many less people are like, well, if it doesn't mean anything beyond what I want, then why would I ever want to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, because like, if I see a ring on someone's finger, I need to know what that means. Right. And if we're all sort of promising whatever we want to promise about, I'm going to always wake you up with a hot cup of coffee in the morning, that's what I mean by a marriage, then the culture is going to have no way to honor it or value it because we don't know what it is. It's It has no place morally in our imagination well, to exist. Yeah, I think we've, in some ways, we detach it from our moral imagination by the way we go about it. I, I, I mean, there's a way to read scripture. If you If you read through the Bible, there's a way to sort of begin to perceive that God has expressed his own moral imagination into the fiber of our material existence. So everywhere we look, there are little demonstrations. I mean, the most explicit one discussed in Scripture may be uh, the rainbow, right, where God is basically infused something in the physics of our existence, you know, made possible a certain physical property of water and, you know, vapor and light to create this thing that shows up in the sky that points to some moral determination that God has made mm-hmm. regarding his own conduct. But but it's not just rainbows. I mean, it you can see this, and by the way, I think it's no accident that the rainbow itself is the thing that's being co-opted, you know, and compromised in our current moment. But I think that's there's a whole biblical teaching about marriage which says this marriage is a is a moral is an expression of a transcendent reality that is bigger than marriage. And so I think what our ancestors understood was that marriage is more than the union of two people. It is an embodiment and in a in a, in a and a symbolic, in some ways, expression of a deeper spiritual reality. And they tied it to the church because of its close association with the spiritual reality within which they understood it. By separating it from that, we, we were saying that marriage teaches us nothing. I mean, it's an expression of the, the intuition that has taken root in our imaginations, that marriage doesn't tell us anything about transcendent spiritual reality it's a it's a contract between two individuals and a form of their own each individual self-expression yeah so i want you to imagine we were you're you're headed in for surgery so there's a very good friend of mine actually a teacher who as at the time of recording is in the midst of a five hour long operation to save his life um now i want you to imagine that the doctor comes out as surgeons are prone to do, they'll come out periodically and update the family on how the surgery is going. That happens on super long surgeries. And I want you to imagine the surgeon comes out and he says something like, well, we're not really sure what we're doing. We're kind of making it up as we go, but we think we found the heart. <laughs> oh, like, wow. Like, you don't, we, we, you'd be horrified. Well, that that's someone disappointing. Was, this is life and death. You don't ad lib heart surgery. You know, mm. that's not how that goes. And mm. yet, 
we're ad-libbing moral Im- imaginations today. We yeah. are ad-libbing the moral imagination, jettisoning, to, to, to Russell Kirk's point about standing on the shoulders of giants, we're setting aside the entire history, mm-hmm. even Christians are doing this, of the shared collective wisdom of the West, which, by mm-hmm. the way, includes the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Greek philosophical tradition, and Roman political tradition, right? We've got all these things, the, the Roman Republic and the Greek Republic. Anyway, we're setting all of that aside in favor of ad-libbing Ad- yeah. in our own yeah. time and place. But that should, It's suicide. It, it is actual societal suicide. But it speaks to our whole sort of determination to perceive ourselves as the the first emergence of anything good and wise right right and and i think too it is an articulation of this of this really terrible belief that um all we need is to experience it ourselves you talked about the idea of the only way uh you quoted russell kirk i believe who might have been quoting someone else talking about the only way they'll learn is through agony mm-hmm. i think i think our generation has believed that any experience we gain is more valuable than inherited wisdom and that if i can experience it myself because obviously i'm the greatest arbiter of truth that's ever existed up until this point then it's truer or then something. it's truer in some way or more valuable in some way instead of instead of asking the question it, it, will it just be more painful <laughs> mm-hmm. um if you do it that way mm-hmm. and uh, i think we to our great peril so like for instance with marriage um if all marriage is is sort of this contract between ourselves they fall apart because they're not enacting a bigger story, as Keith was pointing out. And they're also not informing you about your role in that story. So, like, for instance, I've taken a question off of my life off the table now that I'm married. I don't have to wonder, to whom do I belong in the world as I wander about this great globe? Like, I go, where where ought I to lay my head tonight? You know, when I'm – it's like, I ought to go home to my wife. That's where I that's, – that is a question that's been answered. And it tells me something about my role in my in, in the story of my life. Your place. And if you don't have that, everything goes up for grabs. And if everything is up for grabs, you know what we call that? The abyss. <laughs> we call that <coughs> dissolution. We call that falling apart. Yeah, well, so there's there, there was a great... Oh, sorry, Van, go ahead. I was going to say it's um, that church I'd shared about before where they asked all the members that were 50 and over to leave, to stay away from the church for at least a year. And then when the year's up, reapply for membership because they wanted to hit the reset button and have a fresh start. And so you're you're rejecting wisdom that comes from those that have gone before you Mm -hmm. and tradition and all of these things. And not only did they ask them to leave or step away for a year, but they wanted them to continue to support the church as they continued their ministry and the so-called ministry. Because we want the riches of the past, but we don't want the wisdom of the past. Picture picture of ingratitude. Yeah. 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 Well, so Kyle, your your, your point about being married and being taken off the market. So let's play the moral imagination game (laughs) Not that anyone's really weeping about that, I guess, I suppose. (laughs) No, no. Well, I mean, you're off the market, and that's as you should be. And, and you view yourself as being off the market, and you yeah. view other women as being no longer marketable to you, right? Sure. So, like, yeah. so, so, so there's, some, there's some defining characteristics yeah. of your life that marriage has given to you. Definition. Right? That's good, yeah. So, so let's play this game. If, if the stories you've imbibed about marriage were basically, were along the lines of find the one. Yes. Find oh, man. the one. And that that search goes on. For the rest of your life, whether you're married 
or not, then all of a sudden your moral imagination is infused with this, you know, the the, the primacy of the individual thirst for, um, well, yeah, because romance. Because no the such one, thing as permanence in marriage. Right? Yeah, well, because the one is really just a, a cultural way of describing a person I can find which will fulfill me most satisfactorily. Right. right? It becomes a me-centered other. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I, so like, for instance, as it's just a very practical note, I've, ever since I've been married, I, I don't remember when it was, but I was watching some film and an affair or an adultery with, became a big part of the plot of a story I was watching on some television show or some movie. And it hit me like a train. I was, mm-hmm. I was physically ill watching this show and, and I, it, it, it taught me, I don't need to be watching movies or, or things where that becomes a glorified or an accentuated part of the plot because I realized it was going to fight against the story I had uh, trained myself to understand about the world that this is not good. That would be a that would be a failure in my life if that becomes the story of my life. But if your if your culture keeps telling you these stories, if your culture keeps saying, well, hey, listen, but if you married someone who's not the one, then it would actually be immoral to stay married. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to your point, that mm-hmm. story can become toxic in that way mm-hmm. um, because and I think Russ Kirk talks about this. Stories teach morals, period. There is no such thing as a amoral or a story lacking in morals. It's always telling you something about what's right and what's wrong. And this is what we don't get about kids movies. We go, oh, it's fun and people are giggling in their cartoons. So it must be a kids movie. Um all the old kids' stories we used to tell involved people dancing in red-hot iron shoes at the end of the story because we were trying to tell them what's right and what's wrong. They still do it now, but they hide it a lot more. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, in the course of this series, we're going to discuss a lot of stories. It's a sidebar series with our movie um, series we're doing, and it's interesting because just a moment ago we recorded an episode of Real Talk on the movie Casablanca. And you have in Casablanca this great story that's, that, that I think you could add to whatever building blocks you're accruing for your own moral yep. imagination. Because here's a guy in Rick who gets pulled out of hyper-individualism through being captured by this moral bastion, this, virtu- this, this bastion of virtue in a guy like Victor <laughs> Laszlo. Um, and so I think, in other words, the stories that were that were telling ourselves and that we're passing on to our children aren't all fairy tales, although we're going to talk about the importance of fairy tales. Yeah. Sometimes your own parents may be the story yeah. that you watched, or your grandparents, the legacy of faithfulness in your grandparents. Maybe it's the failure of your parents that helps to form the moral, your moral imagination yeah. for what to or not to do. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of it, it, fact and fiction roped into this idea of building the moral imagination. And all stories are going to flow in streams, right? So I would say Casablanca falls into the stream of stories that fits within the, the biblical story because it's teaching some of the same morals and building some of the same beliefs about the world versus other stories that, were t- that are told today that are not. And so what we're not trying to say is that the Bible and Casablanca are equal. What we're saying is that Casablanca feeds into that greater stream of thought it aligns that with. comes mm-hmm. from, yeah, that aligns with the scriptures and the story of reality we get from Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be careful, even in the way you view the lives around you. Does this life 
feed into, align with that greater story that we find in Scripture. Yeah, and in that sense, maybe there's a, another, a, be- a bigger question to ask of the movies we watch or the TV shows we watch or the books we read than, is it full of gratuitous violence, sex, and language? Right. Like, it could be rated G and be untrue yeah. and be false in a more pernicious sense than something that has some language in it. You right. know, but teach us something true and important and permanent about right. the world and about people. Every story teaches us something. Every story has a, a moral um, assumption. Um, mm-hmm. This is, you know, I'm just going to become the, the source of Flannery O'Connor quotes, but she said something interesting. She said, the Christian novel can't be categorized by subject matter, but only by what it assumes about human and divine reality. And and I think her point is that, in part, every novel is going to assume something about human and divine reality, even if it just assumes that divine reality doesn't exist. Um, but um, but those sort of overarching assumptions you make determine how the moral questions are answered within the story. And so every story is a is a uh, vehicle for forming the moral imagination and expressing it. So um, one, of the, one of the propositions that we're going to take in this series on story-formed, having a story-formed life and a moral imagination is the idea that the purpose and the obligation, the purpose of stories and the obligation of the storyteller is not self-expression, but revelation. Mm-hmm. The, the obligation of the storyteller should be to reveal and in that sense, I was, you know, Dad, you and I were talking beforehand. I said that stories should be apocalyptic, in the sense that they're revealing something that's true and beautiful about the world. Or it could be the case that the story is revealing something that's horrific about the consequences of sin, right. but also true. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, I mean, there's there are stories in Scripture that do that that are horrific, but it's telling you something about the consequences of sin. Right. So. So the the obligation should be revelatory, not self uh, exploratory or self um, uh, expressionist, in that sense. So let me ask a question, and this will be how we wrap up this first episode on story formed life. I w- I'd like to I'd like to have each of us just take a second and think, and then report on what is one story that is integral to your own sense of moral imagination? What is a Mm. story that animates um, or permeates your moral imagination? I'm not going to cheat and say The Lord of the Rings because I think that's going to get a lot of airtime over the course of this this study. Um, But one particular fairy tale has just stuck in my mind. Uh, We actually did a play, uh, a musical when I was in high school called Into the Woods, which is actually a very interesting case study in the moral imagination, which may come up later in the series. But um, it re it returned to my brain the the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood. And especially because I work with youth, I think Little Red Riding Hood has become a story that has ingrained itself in my memory and in my heart and in my moral imagination for, for one particular purpose. Little Red Riding Hood is not really as much about Little Red Riding Hood. It's a description of how to see a wolf when a wolf is trying to hide that it's a wolf. Um, and so that story has become a very powerful story for me, I think, in categories of 
I, I see students in my youth ministry as little red riding hoods. I see them walking around with little red capes in my in my heart, and 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 I see the wolves around them because of that story. So that'd be one little bit of riding hood for me. I would say Return to Witch Mountain, the old Disney movie, because sometimes you just gotta <laughs> get away. <laughs> because sometimes you have to get away. Because <laughs> that's the point of that movie, right? Sometimes you just yeah. gotta get away. Want to get away? Yeah. yeah. Oh man, my mind's racing. Um, and I know I've got better. Oh, I shouldn't say better, but one that just kind of really reeled me in, and I just came across it just on a whim uh, years ago on TV was Sergeant York. Just a guy that, um, after coming to Christ, had to deal with a conviction he had about not wanting to go to war, didn't think it was right, but mm-hmm. had no choice in the matter, and how he handled himself in the midst of war, and you know he's having to deal with this in real time, did what uh, you know he believed was the right steps to take in order to preserve life and take as few lives as... Uh, you know, destroy as few lives as possible in, in honoring the Lord. And so I just thought it was a, such a great story of a man having to deal with this fallen world and live by the convictions he had as somebody that belonged to Jesus. Yeah, I, uh, several things. I, so I, uh, maybe I'll comment on both on the literature and on a movie side. Uh, on the literature side, I think, well, I mean, anybody who knows anything uh, will tell you that um, if you want serious moral literary expressions, read Dostoevsky. Anything he's written is sort of shocking, but also pretty hard slog sometimes from a reading standpoint. If nothing else, just to sort of form Russian names in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) You spend a lot of time like sorting out, okay, who was this guy again? but it's 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 definitely um i mean he just had a vast and interesting moral imagination um i i also think you know i'm glad we're going to do some of this in the film side of this the reels uh adjacent podcasting we're doing uh fairy tales are very rich and deep maybe more rich and deep than a lot of people think i think two uh, movies, one not so recent, one a little more recent, that I think are important from a moral imagination standpoint. One of those is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. We may do that in the we are. series, are we? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very, uh, that takes on a very important question, moral question, uh, and cultural question that I think is probably even in some ways timely. And the other one that I think is actually a very important movie in the current technological techno-moral context weirdly enough is the truman show Mm -hmm. it's a more modern one but i think it's an important movie uh because of some of the issues that it deals with about what a real life is Mm -hmm. or not or isn't and um and the struggle against uh sort of uh having our lives managed for us by others um it's an important movie in our current moment i think yeah, <clears throat> so Kyle, I would agree with you. Um, it's cheating to to say Lord of the Rings, and as you, as you noted, we'll probably it will probably get a lot of airtime here in the in the course of this series. But Lord of the Rings certainly looms large in my own moral imagination. Um, the books, really, if you if you haven't read it, and I, I, I've probably already ruined it for you, but you really should read the Lord of the Rings. 
and give it a chance because <laughs> it's it's important, I think. Um, also, Lame as Rob looms large in my imagination, but um, but I'm gonna say I'm, I'm gonna say these two things. The movie It's a Wonderful Life. I think because it's often watched in my home, it, it gets watched during the time of year that is most rich with ritual and tradition and, and, and pageantry. So, you know, I think Christmas is one of those times that has, for what, what, one of those seasons that for whatever reason has been immune to the, 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 the changes, the jettisoning of tradition you know, and by our culture, even in the church, we still do Advent here. We light candles and those sorts of things. And so I think it's, it's, um, it's sacred in that sense, but it's a wonderful life looms large in my imagination. Here's a guy who was searching for a meaningful, um, significant life and he got trapped by uh, circumstance. And, um, and so that one, that one's big for me, but also I would say the story of my two grandfathers, um, they died oh 20 years apart but 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 their stories are similar in some ways they both belong to Christ but very different in other ways and and their their own lives loom large in my my own moral imagination as i consider what a life well lived means and looks like and so so yeah that's that's what i would say now in the in the course of this conversation over the next several months, we're going to talk about fantasy. We're going to talk about historical fiction. We're going to talk about historical fact. We'll even explore why it's true that fiction is truer than fact, as so Russell stay Kirk tuned will say. For that. Yeah, so come back for that episode. Um, and and we're going to talk about the importance of ghost stories and and the villain and why the villain has a place in good literature and in the development of the moral imagination. And then we'll even talk about how to participate or practice fantasy and fiction and why that's important as we get closer to Christmas. Um, So stay tuned. Thanks for being along for the journey. And good luck on your story form life. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.